0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm
0: Charles Feldman. The January 6th committee heard compelling testimony from election officials in Georgia about how former President Trump's team asked them to find the votes to overturn election results. Now, that's far from the end of the story, though. The fifth hearing tomorrow promises to reveal more about what the committee says was Mr. Trump's plot to remain in power. We go in-depth with one of the committee members. President Biden telling Congress to suspend the federal gas tax for three months as anger grows over record high gas prices. If that happens... Will we actually notice?
1: Popular e-cigarettes could be banned in the U.S. as health officials look to crack down on vaping. Stem cells hailed by doctors and scientists is the future of treating disease and serious injuries. We'll look at whether all that funding is paying off. And uh, mustard, can you find it at the store? Right now you can. What if you couldn't? France running into a problem, and there's worry. It could happen here, too. Well, and July 4th is coming up. What will the hot dogs do? Well, we start,
0: though, with the January 6th committee hearings. With us now is committee member uh, Pete Aguilar, Democratic Congressman from San Bernardino. Congressman, thank you for uh, being with us. So, uh, it is my understanding that uh, past tomorrow there's going to be quite a delay before there are other public hearings. Is-, is that the case?
2: Well, we're excited about the hearing that is going to take place tomorrow. Um, beyond that, uh, no hearings have been noticed. Uh, the schedule has always been fluid. Um, But uh, I think it's very clear. The the chairman has noticed the tip line uh, and we have continued to receive uh, information uh, that's relevant to our investigation. So we'll notice and carry forward with the hearings uh, as soon as we possibly can.
0: Now, you know, is part of the idea, though, Congressman, to to kind of stretch this so it gets as close as possible to the midterm elections?
2: Not at all. I mean, our only focus is in is in piecing this puzzle together. And there are so many components uh, to this, uh, as we have laid out and as we as we have learned, uh, there are so many different layers uh, to this puzzle. Um, But clearly, the president was at the center of this, uh, and it's taking us uh, time to, to tell that story. Uh, But over a thousand people that we have interviewed, thousands of documents that we have taken in. Uh, So this is a comprehensive investigation that is uh, something that uh, that Congress hasn't seen in in a long time.
1: Well, what are some of the new things you're trying to look at? There's this reported documentary footage. There is what you want to interview with Jenny Thomas, the, the wife of the Justice Clarence Thomas.
2: Yeah, I'm not gonna get into specific pieces of evidence that we're that we're looking at or that could be on the horizon, but uh obviously you mentioned from public reporting that the documentarians um you know have indicated that uh that they are in conversations with us and I, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we have been focused on anything and everything that um, looks at the time period between the election and January 6th. And so any documentary footage uh, or video that is helpful to our investigation is something that we absolutely want to review.
0: I, I mean, it's no great secret that uh, one part uh, or one reason for the hearings, other than the historical record and, and maybe to change some people's minds, uh, is also to sort of lay a framework that the Department of Justice could use in the future if it so chooses to prosecute people up to and including uh, former President Trump. In that line of thinking, I'm curious if you are at all disturbed that the attorney general of the United States was off the other day in Ukraine to investigate the possibility of uh, war crime trials there. And do you think that he's not spending enough effort on dealing with issues here?
3: You know, I'm not
2: gonna I'm not gonna pretend to know what's on the plate of the attorney general. I've got my hands full here in Congress. Um, you know, separate branch of government. And I want to respect that the job that the men and women do at the Department of Justice, um, what I can tell you is that our focus and and our mission is to do everything we can uh, to share with the public what happened on January 6th and what led up to it. Uh, We're going to tell the full and comprehensive story uh, that is grounded in the truth. And uh, I take uh, as a source of pride the fact that the Attorney General said that he watched our first hearing and that the career prosecutors at the Department of Justice watched the hearings uh, as a, that they are taking this incredibly seriously.
1: Do you have any concerns, though? And plenty in your party do that uh, the Attorney General, though a great jurist, is not enough of a prosecutor or doesn't have that sort of mind or not aggressive. Pick your term, that he won't go after, at least from the very top, he wouldn't go after a former president.
2: You know, I hope there's accountability to be held. Uh, I'll just say that broadly. and 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 clearly, um, you know that's something that we're all looking toward, um, but but I'll, I'll let them do their job because we're we're focused on on ours. Um, but it's a heavy task ahead of us. We look forward to sharing more material with the public, including uh, tomorrow uh, with our fifth hearing, uh, which will be focused on the uh, pressure campaign that the president uh, yielded uh, directly at the department of justice including you know potential firing of uh, high level officials
0: you probably don't when i say you i'm talking about the the committee you, you probably don't have to change many minds among democrats uh, perhaps uh, you will among independents but it doesn't appear to be among republicans and i cite as example one Uh, What happened this previous weekend in Texas when, as I'm sure you know, uh, the Texas Republican Party officially declared as part of its platform that the 2020 elections were illegitimate, buying into the uh, president, former President Trump's lie. So uh, are you confident that enough people in the in-between spectrum are going to have their minds swayed to make a difference?
2: Well, look, I mean, there's been some there's been some you know, national reporting that has, you know, talked about this, uh, about the president's involvement and where the American public feel uh, on January 6th broadly. Um, what, what we can focus on and what I specifically wanted to focus on uh, when I led the hearing last week was making sure that we did communicate to a, a wide swath of people across our country, making sure that everybody, um, whether they tuned in for the entire, uh, you know, three hours or whether they tuned in to, to your radio show, uh, to, to hear the news, that they received just enough information that was grounded in the truth that gave them a little bit of what was happening on January 6th and the importance of protecting democracy. That's that's all we can control.
1: Congressman, thanks for sticking around. I want to come back to what we were talking about with Texas and in light of what's happening there and going forward. Uh, does that make what you're doing all the more important in a way? Because the warning for the very first hearing that you guys had was, you know, this isn't over yet. So we might have had, you know, team normal and, and team crazy. But if this gets tried again, then uh, they're gonna be better at it
2: you know this isn't political and and clearly the uh, you know what happened in Texas was uh you know a lot of uh you know political um you know discussions back and forth and and that's that's not what our committee is about um you know our committee is about you know telling the truth and and Congress maintaining its investigative you know abilities and so uh we're gonna we're gonna stay in that lane and i 'll let you know Texas politicians. Um, you know, talk about the future of, of their party um, and, and what that what that means to them. But clearly, some of those conversations were, you know, alarming. And some of the positions that they took were alarming as an American.
0: Yeah. But but with with all due respect, Congressman, I mean, isn't it a bit disingenuous to say that there's no politics involved in this? I mean, you know, come on.
2: Uh, yeah, I can absolutely say that you just heard me say that. Uh, this is—I know you
0: said it, community. but but, I'm, <laughs> but I don't know if you believe it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, look. I mean, I think I think it's pretty clear that you don't believe it, but but I can I can tell you that the Democrats and Republicans on the January sixth committee believe it. Uh, we are uh, Democrats and Republicans who are grounded in, in reality and telling this truth and making sure that this never happens again. This was a violent attack on our Capitol. Uh, five people. Five people died. Uh, capital police officers and metro police officers were injured and you know we feel that uh, it's important to tell the comprehensive record and to pass legislation that will help prevent this uh, from happening again
1: While we've got you here something on a different topic the president speaking today about uh, the gas tax holiday that he wants to happen, Congress needs to approve that what are your thoughts on it and does it actually filter down to everybody who wants a break on the gas prices?
2: Yeah I mean if, if if there are things we can do that will have meaningful relief to, you know, Southern Californians, um, you know, then that's absolutely something that I'll consider. But I'm not certain that, uh, that the data backs up, that this is something that can be passed down uh, easily to consumers. Um, you know, with, with oil companies having record profits, you know, $27 billion in the first quarter, uh, I think it's important that, that we, you know, analyze the, the policies that we enact, but uh, we'll give it consideration.
0: I guess the the last question I have on a totally different topic uh, has to do with airline travel. Uh, And we did a segment on our show just the other day about whether it is time to have heightened legislation to deal with airlines. Uh, as you know, the airlines made off of a lot of taxpayer money because of the pandemic uh, with the promise to keep people on board, uh, employees. Instead, a lot of people were given buyouts. Now the airlines find themselves not enough pilots and flight attendants to fly the planes. People buy tickets. They get stranded in the, at the airport for sometimes days. Rolling the dice. rolling. Yeah. I mean, is it time to, to say that airlines are just too important a part of this country's infrastructure to have the sort of free reign they seem to now have?
2: Well, look, I don't uh, I'm, I'm not I'm a big believer in the free market and capitalism. Um, you know, I'm not going to go to the step of nationalizing uh, industries. If, if that's uh, you know where 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 you're going, that's a fair public policy. No, conversation. no, I'm not.
0: Talk- I'm, I'm not. Talk- no, you're going to the extreme. I'm just saying reg- <laughs> that's some that's kind fair. of regulation. Give that's us some rules.
2: So yeah. But I, I judge this as a, from a free market perspective, and I'll tell you, as someone who boards an airplane more than more than he wants to. Um, you know i've seen i've seen the i've seen the impacts that that people um, you know are facing uh and i think that you know where there are places that we can help um, you know alleviate uh and and help um, americans who are you know stranded uh, that's something that we should be doing um but uh, you know, this is this is going to take a little bit of time, and I don't think that that industry is unique uh, in the sense that uh, they have a lot of folks retiring, uh, and they have job shortages and worker shortages. Uh, we see that in the meatpacking, and 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 uh, we see that in our agriculture fields. We see it all over, um, and so we need to make sure that uh, uh, that we're doing everything we can to make sure that Americans um, are in, are in jobs and, and that uh, folks aren't displaced
1: as their travel. When it comes to the gun package, the bipartisan package, people are talking about it a few different ways. One of them is, okay, it's a baby step, but we need so much more. And then people are saying, well, no, it's a baby step, but it's a meaningful one, even if it's smaller than you would want. Uh, which one of those is it in your eyes?
2: This is this is smaller than I than I want. Uh, this is smaller than that. I think you know, folks in Southern California uh, in my district want, but I'll tell you, I judge it through the prism of will it help save lives? And, and if it will, uh, if it is going to be strong bipartisan reform that will save lives, uh, then it's going to be something I feel receives, you know, due consideration in the house and is, is probably going to have my support. Um, but I know that they're still working out some, some hurdles to that. So as soon as, uh, we see the text from
1: the Senate, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a position. San Bernardino Democratic mm-hmm. Congressman Pete Aguilar.
0: So now, uh, Think about this. Imagine, imagine for just a second, a world, to this one. Yeah, a world without mustard for your hot dog. This worry about a shortage could impact the U.S., and has all the uh, funding that's gone towards stem cell research been worth it so far? A new documentary explains, and we will talk to the filmmaker and a stem cell expert.
1: Right now, we talk to the congressman about the president's call for Congress to temporarily suspend the federal gas tax. The president admits it's not going to stop all the pain, but he says it would be a big help. But would an 18-cent-a-gallon discount uh, really matter? Will the cost savings be passed on to us, the consumers? Kevin Slegel is with the Western States Petroleum Association Trade Group, representing the oil companies in the western U.S. Kevin, thanks for being here. So, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, thought that these companies that you represent are actually going to cut us a break once that tax uh, sunsets uh, for a few months, if it does.
4: Well, you know, look, our industry has been acting responsibly and doing our best to provide affordable, reliable fuel Um, to the country, you know, certainly, especially now in the time of such significant demand and everything that's going on around the world. So, um, you know, we're doing our part, productions at near record highs for the past 20 years. Uh, Refineries are pumping and producing fuel at rates uh, that are the highest they've been since COVID started. So we will do our part uh, to provide some relief to consumers as best we can.
0: You know, as much, and you know this, as much as they pump, there are always going to be people who say, well, why can't they pump more? So why can't they pump more?
4: Well, in California, we can't pump more because the governor won't let us. Um, right now, there are permits that have been sitting on, on the desk of CalGym for, for months or years um, that we need to produce more reliable energy here in California. California is an energy island. What we produce here, we use. So if we can't produce here in California, then we're importing it from around the world, um, and we get it from countries that don't share our environmental or political or human rights concerns. So... Number, number one thing is let us produce more here so that we can we can find more here and put more in the market
1: it also feels though and uh when you do the price breakdowns there seems to still be a little bit of mystery about some surcharges that are in there i mean what is that 30 or 40 cents uh, the mystery surcharge you is talked about in california can can you tell us what that is because that yeah, feels yeah, like price gouging to a lot of people
4: yeah so there's been study after study um on that and i think every it, well i know every time it's been studied what we find is it really comes down to marketing and different locations um you know where stations might be and choices that retailers are making so once it leaves the refinery you've got issues like transportation marketing costs real estate where where a station might be um, and all those factors are, are the things that retailers have to decide when they set the price at the pump we don't set the price at refineries um those those decisions are made you know out in, in communities so some, you know, station on one corner, maybe seven or eight cents higher than another. Maybe it's because they're a brand name. Uh, it could be a lot of choices. So those those studies have always pointed to marketing considerations um, for that price difference.
0: Yeah. I and, and I do wonder, you know, because as you well know, uh, lots of people are very fond of, of painting your industry in, in sort of <laughs> evil uh, <Yeah. laughs> terms. But but does the industry uh, have its own solution to this? And what would that be?
4: Yeah, you know, look, we, we agree. It's it's really time to quit demonizing the good men and women of our industry who are just working hard every day and talk about real solutions. And so, look, we're pointing to things like, let's look at the public policies of the state. Are we ready to ban internal combustion engines starting in four years? Are we ready for an all-electric economy? Are we ready to get rid of liquid fuels in the state? And a number of the other things that are happening being proposed right now in Sacramento. Um, when you look at that, if we could produce more, if we could refine... More, if we were allowed to um, explore and do the things that would allow us to have more energy production, then we'd see. You know, those are the types of ideas we want to bring forward. How do we work together? How do we quit? You know, again, demonizing who we are and our and our and our work, and talk about real solutions. And they really, it really starts with, um, you know, production here in the state and the ability to refine.
1: But I think people are feeling like we're never going to get a break from yeah. you guys that no one's going to cut us a break over there i mean we're paying record high prices but you're getting record high profits so why not come down a little bit
4: yeah you know look a, a healthy industry energy industry or whatever industry might be it, you know there's nothing wrong with that but but we hear it and we understand and we under we feel you know what consumers feel when they go to the pump and 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 what that must look like um but you know we keep saying, look, let's look at policy. That's where these costs are. That's why we are in the in the situation we are today. Certainly, you know during COVID, the industry faced really tough times, and refineries were shut down across the country. Some, you know, there was were record losses during during that. As demand is has, has changed, certainly uh, profits have changed, and, and we acknowledge that. So. I think the industry is looking internally on what we can do. We certainly are suggesting ideas to president and on, and to the governor on on how we can do this better. Because in the end, look, we, we want consumers to pay a reasonable price. We want consumers to be able to, you know, travel with their families and do the things they want to do um, and move this state forward.
1: Kevin Slagle, Western States Petroleum Association.
0: This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles
1: Feldman. E-cigarettes and vaping once thought of as better alternatives to smoking tobacco products like regular cigarettes. Doctors and researchers have been finding out they come with their own health issues.
0: The Wall Street Journal reporting the FDA is preparing to uh, tell Juul to take its e-cigarettes off the market here in the U.S. This comes as the Biden administration is looking to cap nicotine levels in tobacco products. Dr. Philip Gardner is a founding member and co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So when, when e-cigarettes came out, uh, as I'm sure you do, I certainly recall it being touted as you know, something that can really help people who are addicted to conventional cigarettes quit smoking, which would be a good thing. So why take them off the market?
5: Well, I think, um, well, but first, thanks for having me. I, th- I think the real reason, and, and I, have, I haven't been able to get clear why they're just focusing on Juul, but let's be clear, using electronic cigarettes is not just water vapor. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the inhalation of um, chemicals called propylene glycol and, um, <clears throat> and nicotine itself, and then actually the flavors that aerosolize that all these things together have actually led to actually serious health complications that we actually have data on. And while it's true regular cigarettes are just much more deadly than e-cigarettes, we're coming to find out that e-cigarettes themselves also can be deadly themselves. And unfortunately, many people who have used these products to quit end up being, and this we unfortunately have a lot of data on, end up being what we call dual users, they're using both electronic cigarettes and regular cigarettes. So um, what was initially portrayed as, you know, a savior for a number of people has actually become a problem. Now, why the um, FDA has focused solely on Juul, I know there's been a number of lawsuits around the country aimed at them. But getting Juul off the market just opens up the market to all these other um, e-cigarette manufacturers that's something i would i mean maybe you've heard more about it i know this just came out today i haven't seen anything about it and i'm not sure that's how that cures the problem at all
1: well jewel was gotten gotten into trouble and was criticized for for selling the pods with the the flavors that that people said a lot of teens were going to go for you know mango and 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 fruit flavors and, and all sorts of things like that and they were the only one but they got a lot of heat for that and and those have been taken off the market already yeah
5: those were already off the market. What was left, and we want to, um, the AATCL, the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council, wants to say, yeah, we should get the menthol-flavored and mint-flavored um, pods um, that are being used around the country and by Juul off the market. Um, what's interesting to me was let's get, you know, Juul, you know, whatever the FDA decides to do with Juul, that's just going to open up the space for other people um, E-cigarette manufacturers to step in. So I'm, I'm just not clear on the logic right now. Um, but if, it, if it takes, if it gets minty, um, menthol um, e-cigarettes off the market, then that's a first step as it relates to Juul. But we have many more steps to go.
0: All right. Let's take the second part of the story, which is the uh, administration, the Biden administration looking to cap nicotine levels in conventional uh, cigarettes, conventional tobacco products. Uh, It it sounds like a a reasonable idea. I know that the tobacco industry is already uh, against it. Uh, What say you?
5: No, this is a great point, and I'm glad you raised it. While on the surface it sounds like a great idea to reduce the amount of um, nicotine in cigarettes so they become um, less addictive, The problem is, and the tobacco industry knows this, that they can use additives, and in particular menthol, to actually increase what we call the throat grab and actually the um, sensation from smoking. So you can, there's actually data that shows that if you reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes and at the same time increase its menthol contact, the smoker will have the same um, pleasure or the same experience. The tobacco industry is thoroughly clear on this, I'm almost certain that members at the FDA are aware of this, too. So let's just be clear as we move forward. In the midst of the FDA trying, let me, let me just make the point as strong as I can. The FDA is in the process of a rulemaking um, process to get rid of menthol um, in cigarettes and, or at least to stop the characterizing flavor of menthol in cigarettes and flavors in little cigars. The AATCLC wants to go on record and say that you need to get rid of menthol altogether as an ingredient, not just reduce the amount of it, get rid of it altogether, because precisely what we're talking about, if there's a reduction in the amount of nicotine in cigarettes, the only thing manufacturers have to do is increase the amount of menthol in it to give the smoker the same reward that they would have had in the first place.
1: Dr. Philip Gardner, founding member, co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Doctor, thank you.
0: Well, I need not tell you, but I will anyway. (laughs) July 4th is coming up, and that means grilling up hot dogs and hamburgers. Backyard chef masters will be hitting the stores to buy the meat, the buns, and things like mustard. What's a hot dog without mustard anyway, right?
1: You might have to find out. Hmm. In France, they're running out of Dijon mustard due to lower seed production. Canada, largest mustard seed producer in the world. They had a bad harvest. Big heat dome was to blame. Concerns growing that a shortage could impact us and then higher prices. How are we going to get by? Andre Rush, celebrity chef, military veteran, worked in the White House as a chef for four administrations. If you've seen him on TV... He's got the big biceps. That's how you'll recognize him. Uh, Chef, thanks for being here. First off, how much protein went into those things?
3: Oh, my God. I think probably about uh, 8,000 a day. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. (laughs) I I do eat a lot. I do eat a lot. But actually, it's uh, uh, one for two. So uh, one gram of protein for everybody pound.
1: There do, you go. There's your
0: macros, everybody. you know how much mustard you can store in those? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Just shove them in. <laughs> so, so, so. I do so, love my mustard. Okay. So, and a lot of people do. But as you heard, I mean, you know, we may be having a, a shortage because, uh, as Mike pointed out, Canada, uh, the drought there, uh, Russia and Ukraine apparently, uh, uh, big producers, exporters of mustard seeds, and because yeah. of the war, of course, there that that's an, an issue as well. Um, what can people do in if they can't get mustard, but they like to have mustard on their hot dogs or maybe even hamburgers? Although, as a New Yorker, I find that just horrible, but okay for some people. What can they do?
3: You know, what they can do is you have powdered mustard. You have other different things that you can do, and you can actually make your own. Right. Uh, i I love mustard. I have different pro, flavor profiles and whatnot. And if that's, that's not feasible because the prices, I'm not going to lie to you, they're going to go astronomical. Uh, not only with mustard, but with a lot of things in the next couple, next following months. Right. So it it's, it's kind of one of those things and scenarios that you think would never happen. Kind of like COVID where you got to wear a mask all the time. And then all of a sudden it's like mm-hmm. it changes your life. So imagine not having for the fourth of July, not having mustard on your favorite dog. Right. And so you have to try to compensate and try to substitute those things that's going to, like, make it work for you. Right. Uh, but me personally, uh, if I don't have mustard myself, I'm going to go at any grocery store and get that powdered mustard and get some of the other stuff and then just kind of uh, make my own mustard, with my own recipe and then kind of go with it until we can kind of recoup this whole situation.
1: What will go into your make your own mustard recipe?
3: My own mustard recipe would basically just be, if I'm going to do, whether it be ground mustard seeds and uh, a couple little vinegar, whatever little spices I have, uh, even if I want to do something that's going to be like pickled or whatnot, and I'll grind it up in a grinder and uh, I'll just make a hard spread for it. You know, I like different, I, I like spicy mustard. I like flavored mustards. People never tried it because they're so used to just a regular mustard. I would recommend trying it. You may find something that you, that is something new that you've never had before. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of mustard, whether I put it on my steaks or my chicken or whether my salmons or fishes or just like I said, on a regular bun, uh, with hot dog. But, um, uh, it, it's so many different flavor profiles with mustard that you can have, even if you add honey to it, you know, a honey mustard or adding, you know, with some little spices or whatnot, it a little something that's going to pick it up a little bit. So I, I love all kinds.
0: Chef, you mentioned, uh, you you know, people can make their own mustard. They can use mustard powder. But what about a shortage of that? Are you worried that there's going to be a shortage of the powder, too? And then you're stuck because if you can't make your own mustard, you're like, you know, nowhere. And if
3: you can't make your own mustard, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have to adapt. <laughs> we <laughs> have to do something. And, and, <laughs> and I mean, it's nothing you can do. I mean, and that's the truth of the matter is, uh, I think what's really going to happen is, if you can't make your own mustard, and, and hopefully we'll get over this and it comes back again, and people will come to the part where, they will, where we don't become complacent and we take it for granted. Because the truth of the matter, even if I'm, I'm I'm guilty of this, we kind of take a lot of things for granted. Who knew we'd be talking today about having a shortage of mustard? About talking about Ukraine and Russia, how the war has affected the, the, the mustard seeds. You know, in Canada, I mean, it's twenty-eight percent. You know, price of, of, of um, shortage on that. <coughs> the prices are going up for mustard, and prices are going up for everything. So you got to have make those big hard decisions of saying, okay, what am I going to do to help everybody else to help myself?
1: Now, with Fourth of July. What are you going to do? I mean, do you still do hot dogs and, and, and hamburgers with a twist or regular, or what's on the, the chef table for Fourth of July?
3: Um, you know what? I'm kind of old school and new school. For so Fourth of July, uh, I'm going to be with the military. I'm going and I'm cooking for those guys, and we're going to have some nice hot dogs mustard, mustard uh, up in uh, Kentucky, uh, uh, Fort Campbell, and um, we're just going to now, and actually I'm doing an ice carbon as well. so it's a little twist uh, with it. You know, and sign some autographs, and just have some fun, and uh, you know, maybe get a guys, make him do a, a few thousand push-ups along with
0: that. Keep <laughs> in arms. mind
3: what what this what Independence Day is all about.
0: <laughs> you know, we we were we were talking about this before, and, and maybe you have an idea. I hope you do on why these regional differences have come about. I mentioned that that having grown up in New York City, you don't put. Uh, mustard on hamburgers—that's ketchup territory—and you uh, on hot dogs, you don't put ketchup. That's mustard territory. But in the rest of the country, it, it's not
1: necessarily like that. How did that all Well, in about? Chicago, they do their hot dogs totally different. Too yeah, but there. who cares
3: about Chicago? <laughs> You know, you know, you know, you know. Uh, New York is a different country. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys, you guys are built differently. <laughs> that's that's kind of like a, the whole part. Of you know, it's funny because I did know that thing about New York, and it was like, okay, you N- New Yorkers are, uh, you guys are crazy on that part of it. Uh, but to each his own. You know, it's kind of like being in the military. You know, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, even with the Space Force, we all have the same thing, but we want to do something different to stand out to make us not like everybody else. So we're all guilty for it. And I'm okay with that. I like being a little bit different. I like doing something with a twist. I mean, even with, my, even with all my dishes, I'll do dish, uh, Coleman, you know, um, a chicken cordon bleu one way, and then I'll, I'll do it and just comp- change it completely around just so I can say I did it. And so somebody can say, hey, that's a different way of doing it. Man, I'm going to try it. And then they can change it up their way. And so I'm okay with that.
1: Chef Rondé Rush uh, with us. Uh, Chef, thanks for coming on the show. This is KNX
0: In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: Stem cells have often been seen as the future of medicine. Many doctors and others have said there's potential to repair serious spinal cord injuries and even treat diseases like cancer.
0: Well, the idea got voters in California so excited they passed Prop 71. That was back in 2004, and it allocated billions of dollars for in-state stem cell research. They even approved more funding in 2020. Well, how much progress in the field of stem cell research has been made over the past 18 years? And it's California, getting a return on the investment. Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Joe Gantz explores this particular topic in a documentary called Ending Disease. He's with us now, along with Dr. Irv Weissman, who is director of the Stanford Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Joe, uh, let me start with you. Why the documentary? Why now? And why this topic?
6: Well, I... Had heard about uh, Prop 71 passing, uh, which gave $6 billion to fund stem cell research. And uh, at some point, uh, I realized that there were a number of clinical trials going on, which would prove how effective uh, these new therapies were. And uh, so I got permission to follow 10 clinical trials in progress for brain cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, spinal cord injury, HIV, uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye disease, and Skid, which is kids born without an immune system. And uh, the progress that uh, was amazing. The effect that uh, stem cell research and regenerative medicine had on these patients was truly inspiring.
1: Yeah, some people are are hearing that list and going, wow, okay, that runs the whole gamut. That's a whole bunch of things. Is that kind of the point that there's work going on in all of these areas?
6: Uh, Well, there were about 40 clinical trials in progress using stem cell and regenerative medicine when I started this uh, film, which was about six years ago. Uh, Now I'd say there's maybe 150 clinical trials. And uh, Dr. Weissman could speak to all the different diseases that are being uh, treated with this. But the idea is to go from treating a disease over a lifetime to finding a one-time cure. All
0: right. And since you mentioned the doctor, let's bring the doctor, Dr. Weissman in. And as we mentioned, he's director of the Stanford Institute for stem cell biology and regenerative medicine. Doctor, uh, to what degree Is stem cell uh, therapy, treatment, whatever you want to call it, being used now at the clinical level and for what? Well,
7: it's very hard to get it to the approved clinical level. But in late stage clinical trials, already the ones that are determining the the amount and whether it's better than anything else, there are several. Um, We did a breast cancer trial that's in his film where we used absolutely pure blood-farming stem cells from women with highly metastatic or widespread breast cancers, and we could use those cells, which were free of cancer cells, to allow a much higher dose to wipe out as many cancer cells in the body as you could. And with that therapy of rescuing them with cancer-free stem cells, rather than what we the former cells being cancer contaminated, they were part of the spread. Half of the women survived 10 years instead of two years with the current standard of care. And now out at 25 years, that shows you how long some of the trials last, um, one third of the women are alive apparently without their cancer. So that's one uh, idea of what it takes. We did another one with leukemia where we found when we isolated leukemia stem cells from older people and compared them to their normal stem cells, we found markers on the surface of the leukemia cell not on the normal. And knowing that we found one we could target with an antibody and that now has led to about 90% of the women and men with acute myelogenous leukemia or a very incurable disease called myelodysplastic syndrome have gone into remission. And now we're moving from earlier phase trials to to older phase trials. Those are two of the kinds of stem cell research. I could go on and on about more, (laughs) but I think there's one really important thing to help you answer your question. If This is the time when a drug is approved by the FDA. Before that, at least five years of what that's called phase three clinical trials are done. And before that, another three to five years to find the dose of the drug that you might use in phase three. And before that, you give the drug first in human or the cells first in human, for another three to five years to make sure it's safe. And before that, you have to prove that the discovery really fits the disease you're doing, but not in humans, in petri dishes or animal trials. And before that, you have to make the discovery and show at least it has the chance. So when I first was out talking in 2003 and 2004, to let people know, I said, this is a long time. For any drug, any therapy, stem cells are no different. And so it's
0: a therapy for your
7: kids and your grandkids.
0: Before we get back to Joe, uh, one quick question for you, doctor, you were going through before in the last segment, how long it takes to get drugs approved by the FDA and therefore stem cell research. And I know that some listeners are going to be thinking, well, wait a minute, didn't we approve COVID vaccines relatively quickly, even though, yes, there was a lot of foundation work done years before, but the actual vaccines came about a lot quicker. So my question is, is there a way to speed up this process when it comes to stem cells?
7: I think for any group of patients that you're giving a new therapy, you want to do no harm. And so most of the issues surrounding what we do in stem cell is make sure you don't do any harm. But when the world is about to perish from a pandemic, you can speed it up, but you take the risk. One of the risks right now people are thinking about is long COVID. I know nothing about it. But I could tell that that's one of those unexpected outcomes that usually the FDA saves you from from uh, the the damage that something could happen.
1: Joe, knowing that this can take years, and, and you tracked it over a long time, and, and you will for years to come, probably. But what you saw through this process, did it give you? a lot of hope. And on that note, I mean, I'm sure you had patients come through and very vocally say, you know what, this is, this is probably my only hope at this point, given given the diagnosis that I've been given.
6: Well, in early stage clinical trials, the patients that are allowed in usually have very, you know, severe cases, sometimes terminal cases. We followed uh, Rosie, who had uh, retinitis pigmentosa and was clinically blind and they gave her stem cells in her eye, and she she got some of her vision back. Now, later on in the trial, they'll allow them, the, the scientists and doctors, to do that same therapy in someone where the disease is just starting, and it has much more potential. Um, Cheryl had uh, lymphoma, which was essentially terminal. Uh, she'd had traditional therapy, and two months later, The the cancer came back in both lungs and her breast, and she was given stem cell and CAR T-cell therapy. And three years later, she's completely free of cancer. So that's what I would call a home run. Ryan, and uh, he he had uh, broken his neck and was a quadriplegic. He couldn't move below his neck and they gave him stem cells in his spinal cord, and now he has the use of his hands and his arms back, which is completely unprecedented. He's now driving a vehicle and going back to college. Um, he he was a, a basketball player with a full scholarship, and so it, it was a tragic accident, but he's got his life back. So um, the potential is amazing. There's also Ava, who had uh, was born without a, a, an immune system and she was given uh, her mother's immune system and it didn't quite work. And the first time she was given chemotherapy, which is so toxic for a young child like that. And then at Stanford, Irv and Dr. Shikuru uh, developed a way to use an antibody, which is completely non-toxic to uh, instead of chemo. So the progress that's being made is 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 uh, incredible. Um, It does take a while. But when you watch this film, you can see what's coming down the pipeline. And it gives people tremendous hope because the future is really, really positive. It's going to be a fundamental change in medicine from treatments over a lifetime to one time cures.
0: Doctor, how difficult is it for people who might be interested to get involved in these sort of trials?
7: So you go on a website, either at Stanford Medical School or the National Institutes of Health, and they list the trials, and then you can find out looking at them if they're important for you or the member of your family you're trying to do it. Then you could use your own doctor to assess which trial might be the very best for you, and you would want to have an expert Uh, cancer doctor, if it's a cancer or pediatrician, if it's a childhood deficiency in a particular stem cell or the function of a stem cell.
1: Doctor, what else do we need to do in terms of getting ready for this in the future? There's there's all the work that that you guys are doing, but do we also have to train up like a whole generation of of new doctors to work with this stuff and then give them the things that they need to actually make it happen? Because there's a nuts and bolts to this too down the line.
7: That's a terrific question. Now, because we were funded by the state and didn't have to start a company, we went through our trial about that antibody that blocked the don't eat me signal for the first several years at Stanford. And we brought in medical students and graduate students and clinical trainees to help us work up what a biotech company would do to get it to clinical trials and through clinical trials. So they were funded also by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. So that is being done, and it's being done at the right level. But I got to tell you, the grant application I put into the National Cancer Institute, I used to be on their advisory board, was rejected as probably won't work. So (laughs) it was stopped at the beginning by a federal agency, and even when we got the antibody, and I went back to them and I said, "Let's do a clinical trial with you." They said, "Sure, well, don't forget to apply next November, and you might get by July, but probably not, and then you get in line. So we have to reorient the federal government's way of dealing with clinical medicine and clinical trials to not only support as they should the basic science and the discoveries that lead to the trust, but also have a realistic way to fast track.
0: Okay. This is it. I'm I'm going to interrupt you only because, sorry, doctor, but we are going to start running out of time and it's a fascinating uh, topic and the film sounds interesting too. So Joe, uh, how can people uh, watch this documentary? Where do they have to go?
6: Well, it's on Google plus it's on iTunes and a number of other, uh, platforms. And uh, I'd like to end by saying that the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine has allowed a tremendous amount of research to go forward that otherwise would not. And uh, I think it has stepped into the breach where the government was going slowly, and it's fast tracking a number of these uh, clinical trials. And so things are moving forward. There, I read that there's a Uh, potential cure for type 1 diabetes that is that is coming and uh, a number of diseases are going to be um, cured with stem cell research in the next few years or so and so stay tuned and uh, check out the film.
1: Joe Gantz and Dr. Irv Weissman the film is Ending Disease video on demand that's in-depth for today back tomorrow.